From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio oddities we find all over the world. We troll the internet, the airwaves, the seven continents, our own backyard, and we bring you the best of what we find each week on ReSound. Songbirds Wanted. Are we songbirds? In Chinese culture, the magpie is a symbol of happiness. In Korea, it's a symbol of good news. In other places, though, the poor magpie is everything from a bad omen to a symbol of death. Say what you will, no one seems to be neutral about the poor little bird. Possibly because all magpies were not created equal. In America, for instance, magpies have a really, really loud song, which is really, really more like an annoying screech. Plus, there's the swooping and the stealing. But in Australia, the bird they call the magpie is a beautiful songster, but truly, it's just an imposter. Are you confused? Well, all will be explained as we delve into the story of the beloved, the hated bird. We start down under, where Australian radio producer Leah Redfern, a self-proclaimed magpie diva, explores the world of the controversial warblers and our complicated relationship to them. One for sorrow, two for mirth, three for a funeral, four for a birth. I think I was about eight or nine years old at the time and we were living in the country up on the north coast of New South Wales and it was one afternoon after school and I was riding my bike along the road and I'd gotten a fair way away from home and just out of the blue I was swooped by this magpie. So I swerved my bike to try and avoid it and ended up crashing it in a ditch I think I flew off the bike and here I was stuck under my bike and every time I went to get up the magpie would just swoop from nowhere I didn't know where it was but every time I got up it'd swoop again and so my strategy was a pretty weak and feeble one and I just decided to lay in the ditch until the sun went down so that I could um, get back on my bike and ride home so every time to this day every time I drive past that road I look upon that little bit of ditch and I remember that time and I look around and wonder where the hell that magpie might be. (laughs) Five for silver, six for gold, seven for a secret not to be told. My first memory of magpies is I think I was about seven or eight years of age and riding on my bicycle through a park and having these magpies coming curling down out of the trees and ducking so fast that I hit my head on the handlebars in front of me. Eight for heaven, nine for hell and ten for the devil's own cell. I was out running as I have been since I got here in June and it was an early September morning And all of a sudden, 
there was a bird, you know, at my ear, like the flapping of, you know, wings in my hair and at my hat. And I thought, what is going on? I didn't know what, I thought maybe something was falling from the tree. So I just carried on. And within a minute, it was there again at me. And I realized then, and I sort of turned around and watched as this bird continued to come at me, big black and white bird. I realized that it was actually after me, and I couldn't believe it, so I started sprinting. like a devil or singing like a diva. The magpie can be hard to miss. Throughout Australia, they're woven into playground legend, forcing children into protective ice cream container hats and becoming the bane of runners and bike riders alike in spring. Luckily for me, I've never been swooped or had the forced humiliation of an ice cream container on my head. I think the burgers of Western Sydney, where I grew up, had avoided any potential problems by raising the vegetation as they built the suburbs, creating treeless streets populated by sparrows, as if native vegetation was the enemy of modern building practice, as if as a species we'd somehow forgotten the purpose of trees. The magpie carries the baggage of European myth and legend, Named for a bird from the old country, it happens to look a bit like. Yet our magpie doesn't collect shiny objects. And there will be no predicting the future from the number of magpies we see. One for sorrow, two for mirth. When the first settlers or people arrived in Australia and they were black and white birds, they called them magpies. But scientifically there's no relationship at all. The European black-billed magpie is called pika-pika. That's a Latin term, and the Australian one is gymnorina tibison. Now, if that's too much of a mouthful, it's bear-nosed flute bird. Flute bird is nice because flute is the kind of pure sound that they can produce in their song. The first time I remember thinking about magpies was when I heard an Australian composer living in London admitting to watching the odd episode of Neighbours for the occasional magpie in the soundtrack. The local bird has unique charms. Once you pay attention to a magpie's voice, you can't unhear it. And after mentally connecting that voice to those big, playful black and white birds, bird watching becomes a whole lot more interesting. I arrived on the 25th of September 1968 in Australia. And my first place was in Melbourne, outer suburbs in Melbourne. And I'd been in that house for exactly one week when I heard this very, very loud calling by birds under the window. And I thought, this early in the morning is outrageous, you know. And then there was a warbling of a magpie and it sounded to me like some sort of synthetic music. I had never heard anything like it. And I travelled a good deal over the world, never heard a thing like it. And I bought a bird book because of that. And I watched that family and I had the pleasure of watching that family for 18 years. 
Gazella Kaplan is a research professor at the University of Armidale and the author of Australian Magpie, Biology and Behaviour of an Unusual Songbird. Why do magpies sing? Well, this is a good question. Why does any bird sing? But in animal behaviour, we always look for functions. When you talk about a northern hemisphere songbird and some of the Australian species of songbird, the male sings in order to attract a female. That's the function. Or there is a function that you want to keep a territory. And therefore you sing to advertise it. If you can sing about it rather than have to fly everywhere, that saves a lot of energy. And in the case of the magpie, the latter is certainly true. Robert Carrick in the 1960s recorded a male magpie in one territory, then captured that magpie and removed the magpie, but kept his vocalisations going in that territory, and the territory was not taken over. So obviously his voice alone was able to maintain the territory and save it from invasion. I started out with one friend, Magadu, and it's grown into the whole family or clan have decided to come to my back door over the course of the morning, because I'm at home of the morning, and I get various visitors, and I've gotten to know them all because of their, the different way in which they appeal for food. Paul Goff is an electronic artist who performs under the name Pimmon. There's some that burst into song, there's some that are very whingy, and the whingy ones tend to be the ones that gobble the food down very quickly. There's one that sits patiently on the frangipani and actually does a very kind of, very strange sound. It almost sounds like a radio detuning. For me, it began one lazy Sunday, on a blessed free afternoon at home, lying and reading, when the room was filled with the sound of magpies caroling outside. When I looked through the curtains to the street, there were three in the paperbark tree, one of many planted by local councils in a more tree-friendly era. Each bird sat on a separate branch, and the number three lent a fairy tale air to the whole affair. Could they be witches enjoying a turn as a bird, or sisters changed to magpie form by some otherworldly curse? Five for rich, six for poor, seven for a witch, I can tell you no more. They are one of the most foremost songbirds in the world. I have not found another bird. The brown thrasher is meant to have 2,000 sounds. The Australian magpie can beat that, hands down. So different kind of modulations, ability to sing two tones at the same time and go over four octaves, produce pure sound, produce very loud sounds, a range of expressions that is just unheard of. I called one bird Maria Colours because I actually recorded it over four octaves of singing with a variety of sounds, I stopped counting after 900 syllables because I ran out of time. (laughs) 
how did you come to sing like a magpie? My father's a mad bird watcher and always used to, for as long as I can remember, we used to go traipsing out into wetlands or into the forest and, and go watching birds. And Dad always used to be able to, just by listening to them, be able to tell you exactly what it was. And we kind of befriended all of the bird life in the backyard because we used to back onto Brisbane Forest Park and this magpie pair became very friendly I guess over the years that we lived in this house and we'd feed them and initially I can remember as a child I'd start whistling to them or I'd whistle to them and they'd come down out of the trees and I'd feed them cheese and then I just I guess I liked imitating things so I tried tried to imitate what they were doing because they'd naturally come down, eat and chortle for a little while. So here was this seven-year-old, eight-year-old trying to chortle in the background, <laughs> like in the backyard with the magpies. Casey Patrick is a vocalist who performs with guitarist Aaron Hopper as stringman Sassy. As a musician, has the magpie's song interested you? I think probably more their ability to mimic. And I think I mentioned there was a sound that when I first heard it call out in this way, I had I really did a double take because I it made me think that there was some kind of old analogue synthesizer outside. That's what it sounded like to me. It didn't sound like a bird noise at all. And I guess in that moment I realised it was Magadoo and I remembered that they're good at mimicking. The interesting part of mimicry is that it only occurs within the warble. It doesn't occur in the context of any other call type. So only when the bird is on its own, which has always raised the question why it's there in the first place. This bird is saying, go away. But it's preambled by some sort of babbling sound that sounds like human speech, but isn't. It was always thought because the studies were done on songbirds that only sing for the breeding season, only the male sings, that they can only learn things in a very short window of opportunity, but not in the magpie and not in most parrots and not in humans. So, you know, there's something special about the capacity to continue learning through life. I've always been fascinated by birds and probably now that I'm a singer and have been singing for a while I'm fascinated with the way they make sound I'm fascinated with the way vocalists make sound so when you come up against a bird they just leave you for dead really and the magpie it's such a unique sound there's something that's so strong about it and it can be so intimate and yet when they let it go when they let it rip it's one of the most incredible sounds and everyone that hears it you have a sense of nostalgia it's been a while since I've done that <laughs> Magadoo and I are quite uh, 
and we have a good understanding of each other. I've been able to communicate with it to the point that it's alerted me when cats are around. It was a particular day when it was emitting a different sound. It wasn't neither singing nor the impatient I want to be fed sound, but it was a much more urgent sound. And I sort of, you know, I talked to it and I said, what's wrong? There's something up. And it kept sort of squawking. And I had an inkling then and I looked under the car and I came eye to eye with this rather large, chubby white cat. Magpies have to defend their territory, not just against the birds of prey and other intruders, but in fact against other magpies. This is one of the recordings taken in an aerial dispute where the magpies have spotted intruders and they all immediately come together as a group. If you listen... There's already acknowledgement from the other magpies that this is a problem and they will all fly together in unison to follow that one along. Disputes happen between magpies on the ground and in the air. There is an aerial rite of passage if another bird flies high enough across the territory. So there is an airspace that's free passage and border lines can be redrawn by some sort of settlement. I began to notice particular magpies in various places, warbling in a eucalypt at the end of the street or caroling from the peak of a power pole around the corner. Out camping with my partner, he crawled back into our tent to tell me that he'd watched two magpies playing together in the soft dawn light. I thought I'd missed something special, unusual. When we returned to the city, I discovered a family of magpies colonising the roof of my flat. One day, oblivious to my presence, they started to play. They whooped and whirled and enjoyed games I recognised, such as tug-of-war with a stick and chasings around the legs of a wicker chair. One lay on its back like a submissive puppy while another dragged it around by its wing. It didn't seem to mind. Others just hung about singing. Well, this is a very interesting thing. It was always thought that there is just a dominant male. But I don't need to tell you that the assumption always came from male writers. <laughs> so there's always a dominant male. There isn't, in fact, always a dominant male. Magpies must be, almost as humans, the most versatile group in terms of their social relations. I've seen pairs of total equality, where they do everything together, feed also offspring together, they share the defence equally, they do almost anything equally. So these are your equal couples. There are total patriarchs, and that's where the assumption arises that there's always a dominant male. 
than their dominant pairs that may deal with their offspring and allow them to remain in the territory for one, two or three to four years before the young go off and try to find their own territory. So there's definitely an age hierarchy. So the offspring have to dance to the tune of the parents. And then there are very interesting levels of cooperative behavior. Sometimes the, the juvenile girls from last year become the dutiful daughters who become the helpers at the nest and they learn how to look after offspring. So you have all sorts of organizations. There are lifelong couplings amongst magpies and there's also a little bit of hanky-panky going on outside lifelong couples and they're actually individuals that sneak away from their territory just to have an extra marital relationship and they must know they are doing something wrong because they do this under cover of darkness and they constantly look around whether they've been followed or seen and there are also divorces amongst magpies. What would be grounds for divorce amongst magpies? Basically very sensible females who say you're not a good enough provider. End of story. So feel sorry for a swooping magpie male. There's always a male who does, does the swooping because that's his job. If he doesn't do that well enough, then the likelihood is that she'll give him a kick out. And there will be other replacements who will be only too glad to come into the territory. Because in order to breed, you see, you need to have a good territory. So let's say if he's turfed out of the territory then uh, there will be other contenders who say this is a lovely place, you know, real hot real estate, and uh, they will take over quite readily. So usually the uh, uh, magpie males are very frazzled around the breeding period. They're just stressed to be uh, out, of, out, of, <laughs> out of this world. for math, one for sorrow. Oh, yes. Yeah, I was finished my run and was doing a little cool-down lap just at the end of the street in the cul-de-sac, and a magpie came after me, and then I was a long way from any shelter because what I had learned to do by this point was to run under a tree or under someone's porch or veranda, bus stop, anything, and, and hide there. And so there was nowhere to hide. It was a big open field, and I was all alone, and I started screaming, and I ran, and then my neighbor, I saw my neighbor getting on his bike, so I ran over and, you know, screaming, Dave, Dave, and sort of jumped at him on his bike, and... He's a real Aussie bloke, and he sort of looked at me and went, oh, you'll be right, you'll be right. And off he went, he just left me. And so there I was shaking, you know, in the middle of the street. I wouldn't exactly say he saved me, but I was glad to see him. <laughs> How did you deal with it after that? Did you avoid that particular spot? <laughs> I never went riding my bike along that spot again, and... I think every time I drive by, I'm always sort of traumatised by the memory of it all. And, yeah, this magpie... I've been swooped by magpies before, but this magpie in this particular territory had its ground marked. It was very protective. And uh, that ditch, you know, it got pretty comfortable in that ditch after a while. (laughs) I was happy to sit it out. I knew that this was the only strategy that was going to work. So 
then we had a joke about it, the neighbor and I, a few days later. And his theory was that the magpie actually was singling me out and knew that I was very afraid in this American accent. I was out of my depth. And so he thought that perhaps the theory was the other magpie was after just me, not every, because he had no problems. And I thought, oh, it's possible. So, so I was sitting at dinner discussing this, and I heard a thud at the window behind me. And I said, Greg, who was that? And I turned around, no one was there. And Greg, my husband, was smirking. And he, he said, you don't want to know. And I said, I do want to know, who was it? And he said, it was a magpie. So they were even after me trying to come through the window, right? <laughs> When you got home, had you been missed? <laughs> I had. Mum was just starting to get a little bit concerned and she hadn't sent out the rescue party yet and I think uh, she added to the humiliation by laughing when I told her the explanation for why I was home late from my little ride on my bike. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that is pretty funny. <laughs> it is funny. I like the theory that the magpie was picking up the American accent. Do you think that one holds any water? Uh, you know, the theory I like the best is my running tracksuit was black and white. And I think they thought I was like a magpie wannabe or something, you know, moving in on their territory, disguising myself as a magpie. So that's the theory I, I'm subscribing to the most, more than the accent, because I don't talk when I run, you know. They don't hear me. I don't huff in American, you know. I don't sort of pant in American. <laughs> After that experience with magpies, you said you were still nervous about that particular spot, but were you nervous of all magpies after that? Yeah, it's fair to say from my time living in the country, I grew to be very fearful of magpies, and this was ingrained in me from a very young age. At my school, we had an oval that was down the hill, and it was surrounded by these these beautiful pine trees, and every magpie season, it would be this game you could sit at the top of the hill and look down at the field below and just see the magpies swooping at random kids as they were playing soccer at recess or at lunch times and I remember one year we were all told that we had to stay inside at recess and the local policeman came along with his shotgun and shot the magpies and it was all hush hush because I think we were a little bit too young at school to be told about this for fear that it might cause us some trauma but the magpies didn't swoop again for at least a couple of years after the local policeman came and visited upon us with his shotgun so that was pretty harsh I thought and uh, I think that had a pretty traumatic effect on me as well and yeah everyone was looking for the dead magpie and <laughs> after that it was yeah it was it was something that was talked about for a while at Alstonville Primary School <laughs> There's no doubt that they took them out, the magpies, and not swooping the kids on the oval anymore after that. You've drawn a distinction between what magpies do in terms of swooping and aggression. You say it's not aggressive. So what's the difference? Oh, it's a very, very important difference, you see. Definitions of aggression say it's something that's uncalled for, unproductive, or counterproductive, 
and there is no explicable function for it. That's aggression. One could become quite political about this, you know, the acts of aggression when people walk into other countries and make war on them or start shooting people without a particular good reason. In case of the swooping of magpies, that is nest defence. There is a clear function for that. Now, when they build the nest, they look around and say, OK, this is our territory. Anything within this territory that is there is going to be OK and we can live with that. No single living thing in that territory that was there at the time of building the nest will ever be attacked. Then let us say some child was born to a family and suddenly there's a little toddler around screaming in the garden and they didn't see that one. So what they will do is warning flights. That may be a low swoop. In the second instance, it's a beak clap. And then there's a wing swoop that actually, the wing makes a sound, a very sharp wind sound. And it's the way the wing is held. And that's another warning. So in that case, all you need to do is respond and step back a bit and give it a wider berth. It's only when none of these steps have been followed, the male will be fearful and he will usually send warning swoops first. If people don't respond to them, then they could turn into attack flights. So to follow up and to confirm a theory, the magpies in your backyard didn't swoop you? No, they didn't swoop me. No, they, they used to come down and keep me company, providing that I fed them cheese or meat or something like that. <laughs> I'm starting to think magpies have got a bit of a racketeer business going on, actually. They probably do. <laughs> they probably do. You get rogue magpies, like you get rogue elephants, who've turned this into an art form, said, ah, oh, let's get this human. And it's fun. And it used to be just some joke that kids threw stones at magpies and magpie nests. They will never forget that. And anybody that same size will become an enemy on their list and they will attack. And they will go straight to an attack flight. Armadale Uni is known for swooping magpies. Well, actually, we only had one pair that was swooping last year. There were many people who wanted to do the right thing by it. But to my surprise, I went and observed the magpies as much as the people, and we were hidden from view to see what people were actually doing. They were physically attacking the magpie with umbrellas, and they were throwing sticks at them. Now, that's not, a, that's not very adult, <laughs> and it's not a solution. That will always make the problem ten times worse. So next year we can expect an aggressive magpie. One that will probably use preemptive strikes. We, we use that in the military now. So we will have a magpie using preemptive strikes because that magpie will not have forgotten. Quite adult academics otherwise, but uh, <laughs> they don't know they were being watched. And the blame goes to the bird. It would be possible, I think, to train the magpies out of it. It's taken us, I think, 30, 40 years to try and train humans out of trying to attack magpies. for a birth. It was Valentine's Day and we went to the roof of the unit to eat cheese 
drink wine and gaze at the view. When we'd finished, we threw the leftover cheese to some magpies who'd begun to play around us. One girl magpie ate her fill and from the back of a chair, not a metre away from us, sang. It was like a scene in a film with a private performance from an international diva flowing in for the occasion, only much less environmentally unsound and somehow full of wonder. We've talked about why magpies sing. How do they learn to sing? That's a very interesting question too, and one we are currently trying to solve, because it seems in all the song types they have, we talked about territorial caroling to defend their territory and to warn others. When we talked about the alarm calls before, I said to you that there's every evidence that the parents teach that. But there's also the one that we associate most with a magpie, and that's the warble. The kind of warbling or subsong or whatever it's called. The thing that we hear on a nice summer afternoon when it's hot and there's a single magpie sitting in a tree somewhere and going like a perpetual mobile. Now that's interesting because that is a song that the bird sings completely on its own. What I've discovered, actually, in years of taking notes at nest sites is that they will do a lot of song practice, but that song practice is only done when the parents are gone, very unlike many other songbirds. So it seems that part of their strategy for maintaining individuality and maintaining individuality of their sound profile when they set up a territory is not to be like the parents. You certainly have some overlap with your parents because you hear your parents and some of that will be incorporated and general views are that it's about 25%. But the rest of the song and the rest of your vocalisations must be your very, very own so that when you set up a territory it is clearly a different territory and a different song. So you get regional variations, you get territorial variations, and each has a stamp of individuality and of that bird on it. And do you think being able to talk like a magpie has given you at all a special relationship with magpies? (laughs) I have no idea. They certainly look at me very strangely. When I see them, I like talking to them to see how they respond. I like talking to seagulls. I think seagulls are perhaps even more perturbed by it. I don't know. Like when you talk to other birds with a magpie sound, it's interesting how they respond, (laughs) depending upon what their relationship is like with the magpies in their area. I have had one amazing experience where we're in the middle of a gig and this magpie just came down onto a table in the middle of the cafe and started singing too and that was quite awesome. I don't like to intrude upon them and then perhaps there's a little bit of wariness with me that I don't want to say something insulting so that they get upset or perturbed or 
it's even probably good that I, I don't really sound like them because I would hate to think that there could potentially be territorial disputes or something like that because this mad human being is trying to speak their language. I was walking down the road and I was probably about five houses away from where I live and I noticed these two magpies sort of having a look on the ground for food. I looked closely and I saw it was Magadoo. And I said, hey, Magadoo, how are you going? And I had my shopping bag and Magadoo came scurrying up to me. And I said, hey, I don't have any food, I'm sorry. And I continued on my way. And it followed me like a little dog for about four or five house lengths until the other younger one sort of called to it and then it flew back and resumed its activity. So I was quite amused. I mean, I'm sure it was just hoping that I was going to fling it a little tidbit along the way. But yeah, so that was a nice little experience. So when you say you're a little bit traumatised by the police shooting the magpies, was that just because you were worried about guns around the school and bullets or did you have some empathy for the magpies? Funnily enough, despite having been a victim of magpie swoopings, I had a lot of empathy for the magpies because I'd had it explained to me that the reason that magpies swooped was because they were protective of their little chicks and that it would only be that time of year when the chicks were very little that the magpie found it necessary to swoop any humans that might dare come close to their nest. And so I'd come to accept that that was just what magpies did. And it did seem a bit unfair that just by doing what came natural to the magpies and just by choosing a tree for their nest that happened to be on the school grounds that they should have that kind of retribution exacted upon them by the local constabulary. (laughs) Ultimately, the way Australia is growing at the moment in its urban environment, unless we can learn to live with wildlife, we don't want to say at a city border... No wildlife must come to here, or it's prohibited from here on. Entry is only at your own risk. There is a way we can work this out as a kind of collaborative effort. And the better, of course, we understand those animals, the more effectively we can do that. I still didn't like them, and I was still pretty angry how they had ruined, like, three good months of running, and my relaxing time was no longer relaxing, and it became very stressful. Anyway, so I was still a little bit aggravated at them and didn't really like them much at this point. And I saw this little tiny baby magpie sitting on the side of the road and the footpath, you know, and he was all fluffy, he was very awkward, and he sort of browny grey feathers and... He was a bit sort of fat, and he was just sitting there, and and I heard him try to do the magpie warble, and it was very like, and it, he couldn't quite get it right, and it was very sweet, and I was I stopped, and I was very taken by this magpie, and I thought, you know, <laughs> it's just somebody's raising their family, and <laughs> so I kind of came to peace with them, and when I remember the bad times of the magpie, I try to think of that little baby magpie, you know, learning his song and getting out there. And he's very cute. <laughs> so now as an adult, just about to become a father, how do you feel about magpies? What will you be telling your children about them? Well, now I live in the city. I don't think the magpies in the city are anywhere near as boisterous or protective of their territory as they are in the country. But... 
I'll certainly be taking precautions. Of course, now kids are required to wear helmets, which when I was a little boy, we didn't have to. Having said that, I still don't think a helmet is any great defence because it's more that sound that they make as they're coming in for the swoop that still haunts me even to this day. So I'd be warning my little little babies that they should be careful of wearing helmets when they go out riding their bike and look around for the magpies but if they do happen to find themselves a victim of a magpie swoop to explain to them that the magpies are just doing what comes natural to them and they're just looking after their little babies like I try to look after my little babies (laughs) The only way I can explain it is often when I've fed the bird it will go back and sit on the frangipani tree and either sing or inevitably just sit there. It can really look in and see what I'm doing around the house and I'll go even with some more food and it'll just sit there so it's not after the food. Why it's sitting there I don't know but to me that's kind of a reward and there's even been times when I've recognised that and just pulled up a chair and sat sort of looking through the glass at each other and it's just sat there for quite a while and it's it's in those moments I feel that I do have this kind of camaraderie that we maybe understand each other that whether it knows that I'm getting something out of it or not but I feel that there's something special there it makes me realize that there are a lot of amazing and beautiful sounds within the natural world that we can observe and listen to rather than seeking solace in strange devices Magpie Diva was produced by Leah Redfern for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. Feel free to warble your song. Send comments, questions, rants, and raves to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. As it happens, we also have lots of documentaries about birds on our website. And if you want to listen to a few and find a link to some beautiful photos of magpies, go to thirdcoastfestival.org. I say, old pal, that looks like a place where we can do business. You said it, champ. As you heard in Leah Redfern's story, the Australian magpie is not even a real magpie. It just looks like one, and the name caught on. On this side of the world, though, we have the real thing, without the pretty markings and, unfortunately, without the Aussie magpie's gift for song. And while many who live near the magpie would like to forget the magpie... Producer Guy Hand feels differently. Here's Mad About Magpies, and he does mean mad. Ah, it's springtime in the Rockies, when a black-billed magpie's thoughts turn to love. And as you can hear, that's a noisy time of year. There's the courting, nest-building, egg-laying, followed by the defending of the new family against every dog, cat, raccoon, garden tool, lawn chair, and child in its territory. All of it accompanied by the magpie's call, which is not exactly the bird world's sweetest. Add to that a few other disconcerting traits, and magpies plunge pretty much to the bottom of the list of birds we Westerners love. 
I don't know anybody that likes magpies. To wake up every morning to screeching magpies. I'm not sure I would hate them as much if it weren't for the fact that so many other people seem to hate them. We're fighting a war, Sam. War against who? Against birds. Okay, that last bit is from the Hitchcock movie, The Birds. But it captures the mood. In Bodega Bay early this morning, a large flock of crows attacked a group of children who were leaving... Crows, who play a starring role in the birds, are related to magpies and both belong to a whole family of unpopular birds. Kevin McGowan of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Well, the family Corvidae encompasses about a hundred species, more or less. About half of them are crows and ravens, the big black guys. And then the other half are things like uh, the jays and the magpies. McGowan believes that our dislike of the corvid family is rooted in European history. A lot of cultures around the world actually like crows and ravens and revere them as you know, part of their creator myth and things like that. But in, in Europe and in Western European society that's, that's influenced North America a lot, they tend to have a bad reputation. They're birds of ill omen. Um, they're birds of bad luck and disease and things like that. And basically that comes from the fact, I think, that uh, there were no vultures in Europe and that it was the crows and ravens and magpies that were the scavengers. After a big battle or a nasty plague, the corvids had the unsavory habit of swooping down on fallen victims and pecking their eyes out. Then to add to that, the crows and ravens at least are black. And that, again, was a negative sort of association for Western European thought, as black as he is the color of evil and all that sort of thing. Think Edgar Allan Poe. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. A century ago, magpies had a bounty on their heads. 150,000 were killed for cash in Idaho alone. Today, our cultural distaste for corvids is still codified in American law. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act only protects magpies, crows, and a few other unloved birds if they reform their evil ways. According to Rex Salabanks of Idaho Fish and Game, it's legal to control them if they peck at your screen door, eat Fifi's dog food, go for the cherry tree. Or, and this is the interesting part, when concentrated in such numbers and manner as to constitute a health hazard or other nuisance. And uh, the main way that you can control them, obviously, is to shoot them. You're not supposed to blast magpies within city limits, but other than that, the law is loose. So it's kind of... Like, what well, does it have that look in its eye, you know? <laughs> the, the, like, it's up to no good and it's about to do something uh, that's S- bad. Some people would say it always has that <laughs> look in its eye. Hear, Hear that? That was a rooster. That was a pheasant rooster. He was right over there. J.D. and his black lab are walking through his hunting preserve in southern Idaho. Did you hear that rooster? Yeah. But there was one in, right over here and there's one over there. There's just a tremendous amount of pheasants here and we have a lot of quail and we have lots of ducks here. We have geese that nest here. There's lots of wild birds though here too. There's killdeer, red-winged blackbirds, herons. JD loves birds, just not magpies. Although various magpie species can be found in numerous parts of the world, the American magpie lives exclusively in the western U.S. And this expanse of high desert has the densest concentration of magpies on Earth. J.D. thinks that density threatens his other birds. 
What's the baby ducks? See them in the water there? Yeah. There's three baby ducks there. Now magpies will go after them if they're on land. They'll just wait until those eggs or babies just get right and then they'll swoop down on them and eat them up. That's all they do. That's why he's carrying a 12-gauge shotgun, just in case he catches a magpie in the act of raiding a game bird's nest. And it's not just the act of depredation that bothers JD and plenty of other people. It's the seemingly devious way magpies kill other birds. Yeah, they usually travel in groups, and I've seen them where, like, if you have a bunch of quail and they've got their little babies, one or two of the birds will distract the quail, the adults, and then another two magpies will come in behind and swoop down and pick up the, the baby quail. They'll team hunt sort of like a pack of coyotes or wolves. A few minutes later, J.D. spots a magpie in the act. Oh. Got him! first magpie. He picks up the limp bird and holds it hanging by the tail. They're a pretty bird. I mean, they're handsome. They're always dressed in a tuxedo and ready to party. <laughs> magpie A bird on a wire Am I Magpies are iridescent black and blue and creamy white with a long, showy tail. By Corvid standards, they are beautiful birds. But still, people think they look flat-out evil. And magpies don't mind taking that dark side into town. Look, there's one right there. Right there, there's a magpie nest. Do you see it? Right by our porch. My neighbors, Dave Peterson and his wife, Mary Lou Taylor, live in Idaho's biggest city, Boise, where they're worried the magpies are taking over. Dave and Mary Lou count six magpie nests from where they stand in their backyard. So maybe Mary Lou's theory that there are... A few jillion more well, magpies uh, than last year. But, how, but how, I don't know if there are a few jillion more, but how many robin nests are in the same vicinity? Well, see, that's the thing that I think is that the magpies are driving out the other birds. Dave and Mary Lou are generally pretty sane, law-abiding citizens, but magpies have got them fantasizing revenge. So Mary Lou wants to start a magpie eradication program, and she has some real clever ideas for uh, getting rid of these magpie nests, I might add. What are they? Well, her best idea is to have me hone up on my archery skills and then get a uh, flaming arrow and shoot it into the magpie nests. We checked with the uh, fire department, and they frown upon this. Neither Dave and Mary Lou are serious about their eradication program, but plenty of others are. People routinely shotgun magpie nests, pull them out of trees, light them on fire, or grab the eggs and crush them. Get yourselves guns and wipe them off the face of the earth. <laughs> that would hardly be possible. Why not, Mrs. Bundy? Because there are 8,650 species of birds in the world today, Mr. Carter. The five continents of the world... Kill them all, get rid of them, messy animals. ...probably contain more than 100 billion birds. It's the end of the world. Yeah, that's from the birds, too. My point being that it's really hard to untangle fable, in this case film, from scientific fact when it comes to magpies, corvids, and, well, nature in general. Kevin McGowan of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology says all this magpie-directed malevolence is misplaced. Partly it's because 
some of the things that we see them do we don't like, and we don't have a sense of how important that is to the whole grand scheme of things. So we see them come in and take a robin nest, you know, eat the babies, and we're all upset by that, and we think of them as these nasty thieves kind of thing. Well, in fact, they're not thieves. They're, they're just trying to raise their own young. In fact, one study found that songbird populations actually increased as the number of magpies grew in the area. McGowan believes we label magpies and other corvids as wanton killers simply because they are big, obvious birds, and when they do something we find distasteful, we notice it, whereas lots of unexpected predators in nature sneak by unnoticed. As studies recently have been putting cameras on bird nests and seeing who it is that's actually coming in and eating those eggs and and babies, what we're finding is it's predominantly squirrels. Squirrels? And McGowan says nest cams have caught another unlikely suspect. Deer eat a lot of eggs and nestlings of ground-nesting birds. I tell you, I didn't expect that. But it's not just a question of them accidentally breaking eggs as they're cropping grass either. There's video of them actually chasing down little fledglings that are trying to run away from the nest and grabbing them and, and gulping them down. Hiya, Bambi! Bambi, too? Watch what I can do! Scientists say magpies are way down the list of animals that eat baby birds. But like it or not, our view of nature is informed not only by biology, but by everything from Beowulf and the Bible to the birds and Bambi. We try to understand nature, like everything else, through stories. We cast animals in the roles of hero and villain, often unconsciously, then push them off on a narrative adventure we hope will end in just, morally satisfying ways. When nature doesn't follow the script, we often react with anger or fear. Are the birds going to eat us, Mommy? Well, maybe we're all getting a little carried away by this. Watching a magpie pull a baby bird out of its nest, even when we tell ourselves it's part of nature, is nevertheless unsettling. Why are they doing this? It whispers the possibility of a cold, uncaring universe, a natural world less teacher than tormentor. So we often try to rewrite the script to save the baby bird and sentence the murderous magpie to death. They'll be all around here. Yeah, they'll be down. Some will be on the gravestones. Someone will be right here pecking at the magpie. Chuck Trost has spent 20 years trying to read nature's story from a magpie's perspective. A retired professor of ornithology at Idaho State University, he's the nation's leading expert on magpies. And when he asked me to meet him in a cemetery so he can perform a magpie funeral, I'm glad to hear I'm not to play the role of the dearly departed. All right, well, I've got a dead magpie here, and uh, and I just put it on the ground in the cemetery, and uh, we're going to go back and sit in the car and see what happens. Uh, What I predict will happen is that a magpie will notice it and start calling. And the effect of that is it draws other magpies in. Magpies will come in from across the river and all around here, and, uh, and they'll be in the trees and they'll be down looking at this dead magpie. So it's kind of an intense thing that goes on for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and then they leave. Trost hopes his so-called magpie funeral will give me a taste of what he's discovered in his two decades of study, that magpies are surprisingly intelligent, complex creatures. He says they have a well-defined social hierarchy, They're monogamous, 
but they also allow for divorce. They'll defend their chicks against animals many times their own size, and they might even have a sense of humor. I've seen a Merlin uh, actually attacking magpies, a flock of magpies, and you just have to laugh to watch it because the magpies would dive into a bush and the Merlin would take off and start to leave and one of them would chase it. And it turned around and drive that magpie right into the bush again. And it, it's happened like 10 times, over and over again. Uh, and I think they were just, you know, they're using this Merlin to show off. So fascinating things you can see if you just have enough patience to watch. Tross thinks we'd all learn to love magpies if we were patient enough to watch them for a while. As we talk, magpies gather in the trees above the dead bird, calling, then begin gliding down and gathering around the corpse itself. One tentatively pulls at the tail, and when there's no response, backs off and simply stands there. Trost has an explanation for all this. It's probably trying to see what killed it. And mostly I think what it is, they're trying to see who it is, because they know each other. Magpies know each other. And whenever there's a dead magpie, that means there's an opening in the social system. And if you're a submissive magpie, you can move up one notch. As a scientist, Trost can't speculate on the magpie's capacity to mourn. But watching these birds standing there among the gravestones, dressed in funereal black and white plumage, I can't help but wonder if there's some kind of spiritual spark glowing in those complicated little corvid skulls. If we're so quick to assign the worst human traits to magpies, can't we allow them just a little room for reverential reflection? It seems only fair. Who's to say magpies aren't contemplating the nature of life and death like us? Maybe they're just a little noisier about it. Ornithology happens to be my avocation. Birds are not aggressive creatures, miss. They bring beauty into the world. It is mankind, rather, who insists upon making it difficult for life to exist upon this planet. Now, if it were not for birds... you don't seem to understand. This young lady said there was an attack on the school. Impossible. Mad About Magpies was produced by Guy Hand for NPR's Living on Earth. You know, old chum, I do believe it's time we departed this place. Yeah, I'm with you. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars with associate producer Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcasts. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.